Welcome to No Ordinary Women, the podcast where two ordinary broads chat about extraordinary women, the good, the bad, and And the the batshit crazy. Hi, Rose. Hey, Lenny. How's your week going? It's been good. It was my birthday yesterday. It was a birthday. Thank you, everybody, for wishing her a happy birthday. Yes, thank I was you so very excited much. when I saw Sisters Take a Side wish you a happy birthday. I know, that was so, so sweet. sweet. That was absolutely so sweet. Yeah, there's a lot of like likes and birthday happy birthday to you on there. So I know there must have been so at least four hundred. So. At least. At least. Oh wait, that was, <laughs> that I woke up. That was a dream. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I'd be surprised if 400 people knew who I was. Yes, yes. <laughs> Let alone wish me a happy birthday. Well, there were those, those days when you kind of got around. Oh, yeah, that's then. true. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. that doesn't mean that they knew who I was. <laughs> yeah. So if I stopped talking, you guys, it's because I fell asleep. Just so you know. <laughs> I've already worked my second job twice this week, and I worked all weekend. So I feel like I've been working both jobs nonstop, and my face is getting ready to plant on the computer. <laughs> I am so tired. So we just had I, I um, made margaritas. I didn't really make them. I yeah, can't lie. she just cheated and got a big bottle. Of I got the pre-made stuff. The it's not bad for pre-made. It's stuff. not bad. No, it's yeah. not that bad. It just had. I, I just feel like it's. I mean, I've kind of gotten used to all the special drinks that we've been making, and they're all fresh and yeah, I don't right. like sour mix. You know. Yeah. I like making my own, and mm-hmm. but I just have been so busy. I had to spend all day today. Um, Working, you know, my work, my job. <laughs> there was no time to, you think know, think about drinks, think about cocktails and stuff. So, so she yeah. failed us. I did, I but did. it'll be all right. Everyone. I did add a nice rim job to it. <laughs> That's what she said. Um, and with you know sugar, salt, and tangine, and then um, added a splash of OJ, which kind of. You know, takes the yeah, fancied it up a bit. I did fancy it, so it's technically homemade now. <laughs> so, what'd you get for your birthday, Rose? What'd you get? What'd you get? What'd you get? Um, I didn't get anything. You got chips and guac from me. <laughs> <laughs> no, Chris just got me um, like a workout jacket and a Peloton shirt, and because I told him I want to get a tattoo, and so that's going to be my my gift. But he wanted it, me to have something to open. Is he going to give you a tattoo himself? Yeah. I'm going to get his face on my arm. You're going to do like a stick, what's it called? Portrait. Pin and stick or whatever it's called? Pin and uh, stick. Stick and, stick and pin. The You know, when you just dip the pin and stick and poke. Poke and stick. Stick and poke. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. It's like called stick and poke, I think, or poke and stick. It's where like you take like a needle and you dip it in in ink and you... Do like poke, oh, poke and on yeah. the skin. Yeah, he's gonna do it for me. Yeah, that's perfect. Might have Charlotte do a little too. Oh, that's a great <laughs> idea. Why don't you have Lily do it <laughs> yeah. right on your face? <laughs> Give me a little teardrop. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> for all the people that you killed. <laughs> yeah, all the people I murdered. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, but yeah. it was a good birthday. Good. I had two cakes. I had uh, my coworker bought me a chocolate cake with like a cream cheese frosting, mm. and then. Chris bought me a ice cream Oreo cake. It was so oh good. I love ice cream cake yeah. so much. And we ate. We went out for lunch at work. We went to uh, this Mexican place, Guadalajara. Oh, okay. And for dinner, we had pizza and cake. It was a good day. That sounds like a good day. I, I had about eight thousand calories. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> very, very low carb and calorie day. Yeah. That's what it sounds like to me. It sounds like cake and cake. <laughs> Yeah, I so, was working on your birthday, so that's uh, yeah. why I bought you guac and chips today. No, it was delicious. I yeah. loved it. We housed those guac We did. And chips. We, we ate them very quickly. <laughs> Gone. I was so hungry. That's how I am when I come home from work. Even if I have a snack at work, when I by the time I get home, I'm like, oh, my God, I want to have a snack. Famished. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I don't like going to work. If I stay home. That's true. If I and stay home no... and work from home, then I'm... I don't snack, really. But when I get home and I'm like, oh, I want to eat right now. Oh, my God. When I'm home, working at home, I snack so much. Oh, I really don't. I don't have time. You know, I'm... You don't have time to eat? There's always time to eat. I eat my breakfast and my lunch, but at my desk while I'm working. I don't... I don't like... That's what I do at work, but I still eat it. I mean, ain't nobody stopping that. 
I'm going to need another margarita soon, Rose. We're not going to have a repeat of last week, okay? Okay. <laughs> too uh, many margaritas. Too many. <laughs> deleting episodes. Well, I didn't delete the episode <laughs> or add some weird sound. I know. It's fucked up the sound. Yeah, so Rose tried out a new, um, like, sound filter kind of app Yeah, it was supposed program. to take out, like, all the the excess sound and... It just made it sound super weird. I don't know if I did something wrong or... Probably. I'm sure I did something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm positive that's what happened. So there's a podcast um, that they record at my work. And I work in a restaurant bar with high ceilings and the acoustics are awful. And I'm like, how are they doing that? Like, And so I tried to find the podcast. I can't find it. I I'll can't have, find it either. I'll have to ask them next time where they're releasing it. I can't imagine that it's not on it's Apple. It's just like a Charlottesville. It's like the... Basketball player, woman's right. basketball. Sam Brunel. Brunel. She's like a basketball player. She was a basketball player at EVA, pretty popular, and she does a podcast. And I guess her dad comes and does the sound. So somebody told me that her dad, like, filters out all the like echo and everything out of it. And I'm like, Ugh. that's what I tried to do, but. <laughs> Can we hire him? <laughs> no They're in a building that's like loud. I mean, I it's can't imagine how noise. loud it is. It's yeah. awful. Yeah. I mean, it's just like it sounds awful. It's so loud. I can't imagine. I mean, it's not an awful podcast, but it's like this. The sound that they're using or that they're like de- that they're dealing with is awful. You've got background noise, dishes. Yeah. You've got people talking. You've got like the echo in the room. And and somebody said, no, her dad like filters all that out That's and I was like insane. We we have trouble filtering out sound in a padded room <laughs> in our padded cell. <laughs> so I was like, "Oh, good grief." So I definitely have to figure out how I'm going to listen to that. I'll I'll ask her next time, but I didn't want to talk to her this time. I was too busy, so. Sure anyway, you Rose, you're going to tell us your story. Who are you talking uh, about, yeah. Rose? I don't even know who you're who you're doing. I can't remember what you said you were doing. Because I changed it like four times. Oh, well, there's that. that. (laughs) I could not find someone. Like, I would start a story and then be like, "Uh, this person's not. Yeah. I mean, they're interesting, but it's like not interesting to me enough for me to write something and then talk about it. Well, and you also have to, I feel like if you're, if depending on your mood, if it's something that's not like gripping, then it's just like, forget it. I can't do this. So this this got me because... um, it was pretty interesting what this woman did. Is it the good, the bad, or the bad shit crazy? Um, the good. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's boring. I'm going to take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in a fun way. Okay. Well, that's good. Okay. <laughs> okay. So Elizabeth Jane Cochran was born on May 5th. Cochran? I, I, I was waiting. <laughs> Every time I read that when I was writing this, I was like, what is Lynn going to say? <laughs> There's a word cock in something. Cock ring. <laughs> Sorry, Elizabeth. I just had to say it. Anyway, she was born on May 5th, 1864. May 5th? Yeah. Remember that date for when I do my story. Isn't that Cinco de Mayo? It is Cinco de Mayo, but there, that's correlates <laughs> oh, okay. to my story, too. That's interesting, yeah. Um, in Cochran's Mill, Pennsylvania. Her father, Michael, owned a mill. I don't know if he owned, like, the mill that's... The town was named after because obviously Cochran's Mill, but it wasn't specific. Well, I assume that's. I would assume that there was a mill there, and at some point they decided to name the town after the mill because it was probably the biggest employer. Yeah, and he owned it. Oh, yeah, I, I mean, I and assume. And if their that's last it. name is Cochran, yeah. I mean, I'll cut all that. <laughs> their their last name's Cochran. Cochran. <laughs> <laughs> So Michael married twice, and he had 10 children with his first wife and five more children, including Elizabeth, who was his 13th daughter. How? Wait. He wasn't running a mill. He never had pants on. <laughs> with his second wife, Mary Jane Kennedy. Michael died in 1870 when Elizabeth was just six. <clears throat> Look, I'm a little choppy. So... Elizabeth's mom, Mary Jane, and the children were unable to maintain the land or their house, so they left Cochran's Mill. And at 15, Elizabeth rolled, enrolled at the state normal joints, school in Indiana. <laughs> yeah, she was rolling joints. <laughs> she enrolled at the state normal school in Indiana, Pennsylvania. 
but had to drop out after one term because they could not afford it. I think it's so funny how many times we've talked about normal school since we've started this podcast, and I had never, ever heard that term before this podcast. <laughs> that is very weird. It, I mean, we've said it at least three or four times, yeah. if not more. And I think it's interesting that two normal chicks like us have never been <laughs> normal school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lynn's super normal. They kept me far away from normal school. <laughs> They're like, send her to the abnormal school yeah. down the road. <laughs> the spatial school. Yeah, the spatial school. So, um, this is so funny. Okay. Anyway, Elizabeth began to look for a job to help support her family. She was 15, oh but had more trouble than her brothers who were less educated than she was. All because she had a vagina. Uh, yep. Well, so, they were probably... They would hire them to work on, like, farms and, like, do labor jobs, yeah, and, and they're never the, going to hire a woman Yeah, right. That. Even well, even she, in, um, like, journalism, which is what she goes into, uh, they weren't hiring women. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, oh, women no, women just didn't work outside the home. This was 1860. Yeah, yeah. 1870s at this point. So one day she read an article in the Pittsburgh Dispatch that criticized the presence of women in the workforce, and she was pissed. Go. So she wrote an open letter to the editor and called for more opportunities for women, especially those who were the breadwinners for their families. And so the editor, George Madden, read her letter and was like, hmm, I like this this girl. She's a little fiery. Yeah. And also she her writing probably impressed him. Right. The yeah. letter. You know, that's a good way to. You know, a dumb woman could write. Yeah. <laughs> Look at look at her. She just had to hold a pencil. <laughs> she knows how to hold a pencil. <laughs> so anyway, George asked her to become a reporter for the dispatch. And so she agreed and wrote under the pen name Nellie Bly. And at first she really liked the job, but soon she realized that they were only allowing her to write pieces that addressed women. Oh. And, like, you can have an article and write about, like, laundry. You know? yeah. <laughs> or raising children. What's the best laundry soap to use? <laughs> and so she was like, fuck this. I'm not going to do this. This is not, like, I'm better than this. I have, I'm smarter yeah. than these motherfuckers are pretending I am. So she really wanted to be a reporter. So she moved to New York City in 1886. And unfortunately, when she got there, she had an even harder timing, an even harder time trying to find work because it was a male-dominated field up there oh, yeah. also. And I'm sure. They, weren't, they were not looking for women at all. So in 1887, Nellie stormed into the office of the New York World, one of the leading newspapers in the country. She confronted the editor, Joseph Pulitzer, and told him that she wanted to write about the immigrant experience in the United States. And Joseph was like, hard pass, Nellie. But if you'd like, you can investigate Blackwell Island, which was one of New York's most notorious mental asylums at the time. So this isn't the same... Island that I talked about. That's what I was that's with just Typhoid thinking. Mary, right? Well, no, that wasn't. That was in Blackwell Island. No, it wasn't Blackwell Island, but I wonder if it changed its name at well, some point. Maybe. Hmm. Okay, go ahead. We'll I didn't to, look. I thought we'll about that to, while I was writing it, but we'll I didn't have to look, look into that it. up. Yeah. Go ahead. So Nellie didn't just accept his offer. She decided that she was going to pretend she had mental illness, a mental illness, so she that she could live there and expose firsthand how patients were treated. She had always assumed that the mentally ill were well, well care, care for, cared for and that the stories about abuse and mistreatment in asylums was just exaggerated. And her and a lot of people thought that, that it was just like they were in these, these homes, you know, where people were taking care of them. Mm-hmm. That's what they believed. So Blackwell Island is now what's called Roosevelt Island. Okay. And um, it's... Uh, hold on. And I've looked at it on maps before, on maps before, and been like, "What is what is that?" You know, because when you're looking at a map of New York and you're like, "What is that?" Yeah. You know, it's between like Astoria and Manhattan. Yeah. So it's between Queens and Manhattan. It's a long, skinny island. Hang on, let me show you, Rose. It's this one right here. 
Oh, well, it's long. It yeah. Long. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I said that, I was like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> She wasn't sure that she could be convincing enough to actually be admitted. But come to find out, it wasn't hard for women back then to be committed to an asylum. Yeah, I'm sure. The night before she went to the asylum, she practiced making crazy faces in the mirror (laughs) and telling herself ghost stories. So she was too scared to sleep and she'd appear a little like tired and crazier. A little wired. (laughs) Kind of like you right now. Kind of like the way I feel every day. (laughs) So the next day she goes to the to a women's boarding house and starts acting really like nervous nervous and fidgety and till the and just kind of odd until the other women are alarmed enough to call the doctors and they come and take Nellie away. And then she has to be examined by several doctors and a judge who are the ones that will say whether or not she classified it as insane and right should be sent to an asylum asylum. So, and because this was, you know, back in the day, this all happened very quickly, like mm-hmm. days. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was really nervous about it because how, like, these men that that are going to diagnose her as being insane are all um, experts, you know? And the judge yeah. is, is supposed to be, you know, a judge and she's got to fool them all. Right. Yeah. And... Which they're men, Rose. It's not going to be hard. Yeah. To so it, it was not hard at all for her to fool them and oh make goodness. them think that she was just some crazy woman, batshit crazy woman. Well, it's because she wasn't doing what they said. Yeah. Back then, every any woman was crazy. They exactly. There's like one story I did where they're like, she's crazy because, you know, women were known to be crazy when they had their period. Yeah. Like, you know, they had PMS. Well, and they were they, crazy. People still say that. No. I mean, I I'm am a little, a little crazy. crazy. <laughs> Sometimes I think I'm crazy. Yeah. Um, but she was really good at it and had them so convinced that they immediately take her to um, Bellevue Hospital for examinations, mm-hmm. which were really just the staff asking her questions because they already like knew sh- she was crazy right. and were planning to send her to the asylum. So when she's at Bellevue Hospital, she meets a woman named Anne Neville, who is a real patient, and Anne tells her that she's a poor chambermaid, and she got sick and was sent to a sister's home. And I think she was just, like, regular sick, like, mm-hmm. ill, you know. And so her family was unable to pay for her to be at the sister's home because oh, her no. nephew lost his job. And so they moved her to Bellevue and basically started treating her like she was insane. Oh. And because they had no choice but to keep her. Because she was sick. So but that's they, the only way she could get free care? I don't know. I, I have no idea how it Even worked, though she wasn't but, sick anymore. Right. Oh, my heavens. So she was telling Nellie, she's like, I'm not crazy. I'm just poor and sick. <laughs> like, oh, my God. So what she really needed was, like, help, you know, and yeah. she didn't get it. They just tried to do all the things they did back then that, to crazy people. And, by the way, I'm using the language that was in this story. Like, I, I don't call... People who are mentally ill, crazy. <laughs> this one, she just calls me crazy. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but you know, back in this day, that's what yeah. the language they use. Um, so almost all of the women that she met at the asylum were poor or from immigrant families, and they were sent there for reasons other than mental illness. But the doctors just assumed that they were all insane and treated them as such. Oh my god! And they probably gave them all kinds of like. Lithium and all oh, kinds yeah. of weird drugs like that to make them comatose. For sure. Oh, my God. So she's finally transferred out to Blackwell Island. And once she gets there, she completely stops acting like she's suffering from mental illness. Like she acts like her normal self. Mm-hmm. And the more normal she acts, the crazier they think she is. <laughs> so they think she's acting now. They think she's acting normal. When she was like, acting, right. they thought she was crazy. But yeah. now she's n- normal and they think she's... Acting. Right. Oh, my God. So she writes a six-part expose when she comes out, um, and it covers the 10 days that she's at Blackwell. And she writes that the food that they're given is, like, barely edible. It's, like, the meat is, like, spoiled and cold, and the bread was black and dirty and hard and just, like, completely unedible. 
And it's so bad that she can't even make herself eat it, like, the first couple of days she's there. But the other women are starving, and so they all, like, gobble her food up. (sighs) So that first night, she's given a bath in ice-cold water, and then puts they put on her PJs without drying her off. And they put her to bed like that. And her skin and her hair are soaked, and it soaks the bed. Like, that's how wet it was. It soaks her PJs, soaks the bed, and she has, like, a tiny little blanket that doesn't even cover her whole body. Like, her feet are sticking out. Oh, my God. I would be miserable. And she's, like, freezing. Oh, that's the worst. You know those rooms, there's, like, nothing in them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So she starts talking to the staff and asking questions, and she asks why there aren't more blankets and clothes and food and why the patients are treated so poorly. And she's told that... This is charity, and you should just be thankful for what you get and don't complain. Oh, well, there you go. Yes, charity. I think they'd be better off on the street. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So there are two nurses at Blackwell Island taking care of 45 patients. Oh, my gosh. And the patients are forced to clean the entire building, including the nurses' bedrooms and washing their clothes. And then they are told to sit on benches Mm. for hours and do nothing at all. And this is directly from her book, 10 Days in a Madhouse. Mm. I was never so tired as I grew sitting on those benches. Several of the patients would sit on one foot or sideways to make a change, but they were always reported, re, reproved and told to sit up straight. If they talked, they were scolded and told to shut up. If they wanted to walk around in order to take the stiffness out of them, they were told to sit down and be still. What, accepting torture, would produce insanity quicker than this treatment? I would like the expert physicians who are condemning me for my action to take it the, a perfectly sane and healthy woman, shut her up, and make her sit from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. on a straight back bench. Do not allow her to talk or move during these hours. Give her no reading and let her know nothing of the world or its doings. Give her bad food and harsh treatment and see how long it will take her to make her insane. Two months would make her a mental and physical wreck. Oh my God! That Can you imagine so me- if you weren't didn't you have if you weren't mentally ill at that point? You're now mentally right. ill. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. I what mean, you I say. can't even sit on this wooden chair I, that's for the what hour I was just thinking. I'm like, you and I on these chairs are like we move so much. That's why our sound's so bad. <laughs> my butt gets like numb. I know. I don't. My sit back still that hurts, long. Yeah. and my like I gotta move my legs. We're just on these little wooden chairs. I mean, they're not bad chairs, but they're just you know they're yeah. not ideal. And even in my desk chair, I move. Oh, constantly. I do, too. I do, too. And I cannot imagine sitting on a bench. A wooden bench, no. From six to eight. No, there's no... How would you do that? I don't know. It seems like, yeah, like you just fall over at some point. I just play dead or something. I don't yeah. know. I would be like, just kill me, please. <laughs> so she details um, the other abuse fr- abuses from the nurses. They would taunt the patients and physically abuse them. She saw women choked, pulled by the hair, and given Mm. black eyes for no reason. Oh, my goodness. The nurses would gossip with each other, and when the doctors would come around, they would flirt with them. And they were just constantly berating the patients. So when Nellie's writing is published, (laughs) I was going to say published and publicized at the same time. (laughs) Came out a little weird. So when Nellie's writing is published, everyone is shocked. Most people had no idea that this was what was going on in those asylums. It was like the people in charge of the facilities just didn't care about the patients at all. And it's because they were poor and, in their minds, insane, and mm-hmm. they were female. And so they're like, lock up those crazy women. Yep. And most of them weren't even, didn't even have mental illness. They were just, you know. I've read that women would be locked up back back in the day, that women would be locked up because they like to read too much. Like, <laughs> okay, well, you know, well, I mean, honestly, I'm not, and I'm not being sarcastic. It's because they were educating themselves, and people were afraid of women oh, educating yeah. themselves back then. Or if they chose like a different religion, if they didn't believe like whatever, just basic Christianity. Religion, yeah, right. Yeah. If they were questioning it, they'd be like sent to these asylums. Yeah. Because well, that's what happens when you read. You become educated. Yeah. And, yeah. Lord knows you don't want that. Nobody wants a smart woman around. No. <laughs> Soon, a grand jury launched an investigation, and they invited Nellie to go and visit Black Island with them. Black, Black Island? Blackwell Island with them to investigate. And when they got there, everything, somebody had given them a heads up, and so everything was different. The food was like, it was good food. The place was clean. And all of the women that Nellie had written about in her 
um, expose were moved. So so she couldn't even it sounded like she was just making them up. Oh my god, they were in like a different a different wing or yeah. something. Oh like my god. Like they had god. moved them or discharged them and so everything was covered up. Oh my god. So the grand jury's report recommended the changes Nellie had proposed and added $850,000 to the budget of the Department of Public Charities and Corrections. Which is, I forgot to look up how much that would be these days, but that's a lot. They also attempted to make future examinations more thorough so that only the seriously ill were admitted into the asylums. Hmm. Which I'm sure helped a lot, but, you know, in the 50s, the asylums were still really bad, so. Nellie's writings writings about the asylums quickly made her the most famous journalist in the country. Her hands-on approach to reporting developed into a practice now called investigative journalism. She continued to write all about New New York's issues, such as corruption in the state government, corrupt employment agencies for domestic workers, and the black market for buying infants. Ugh. I know, that's disgusting. Her straightforward yet compassionate approach to these issues captivated audiences. So I was thinking the black market for buying infants, I'm like, so were they just going and stealing people's infants? And yeah, I mean, that's what happens. They steal them from the hospitals and stuff. I mean, that's oh what happens. You know, that's what happens now. I yeah. mean, not now. Now, I mean, like, but that's they steal them. Haven't you seen that? Like on like suspense movies and stuff. No, like, I have. Yeah. That's what I. That's what I mean. Like, like, I guess that's what they were doing. Yeah, they just... tell the mother the baby died or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, there's so many different scenarios. But yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all. So sad. In 1889. She decided to travel around the world after reading Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne. Daily updates of her journeys were published in the New York world, and the audience's, audience was captivated. She managed to make the trip in 72 days and set a new world record. Hmm. That's pretty impressive, 72 days. Wow. And what was she on, like a canoe? I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> it wasn't like she was on a jet. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, a few months later, some guy named George Francis Train took that title after completing the journey in just 67 days. Oh, of course he did. Yeah. Jackass. So she went on to publish interviews. While his wife was home with the kids. (laughs) (laughs) Probably trying to put food on the table. Mopping the floor on her hands and knees, and he's just (laughs) flitting, flopping around, flipping and flopping around the whole world, (laughs) trying to break a record. So I know. Wouldn't you be pissed if like, that's all you're doing? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're like, excuse me, sir. Yeah. No. Get home and take care of your children. Yeah. And hopefully she broke his record the week after his life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Nellie went on to publish interviews with prominent people and covered major stories like the March of Jacob Coxey's Army on Washington, D.C. Lots of Coxies in this story. A lot of Cox. A lot of Cox. Cox. And- <laughs> And the Pullman strike in Chicago, both of which were 1894 protests in favor of workers' rights. That was the, the Pullman strike. That was the one. Oh, that, that's the one you yeah, talked about. Yeah, she oh. talked. Yeah, she helped with the the. She was a big um, pull. <laughs> no, a big um, presence in the Pullman strike. Oh, good for her. Um, what was her name? God, I don't even remember. Um. I remember looking at the pictures. I can yeah, see the me pictures too, of her head, marching and stuff. I can't remember who it is. I can't remember her name. Anyway, I'll look her up. Go ahead. So when she was 30, she married millionaire Robert Seaman. Oh, my God. Oh, Seaman. my God, Rose, with the <laughs> innuendos. I'm not having sex with you. Would you stop? <laughs> so far, I said vagina, Cochrane. 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 Seaman. Seaman. <laughs> and, and then Coxie. <laughs> So she married millionaire Robert Seaman. Welcome Seaman. to Hidden Messages by Lynn and Rose. <laughs> and she retired from journalism. So she did all of that before she was 30. Oh, my God. Oh, Mary Harris Jones. Oh, yeah, I yeah. remember her. Now. And they called her Mother Jones. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Okay, sorry. So when Robert died in 1903, she was left in charge of ironclad manufacturing company and American Steel Barrel Company, which I think is one company. I don't know. Hmm. Or they were together in the same factory. And normally for any woman back then, it, this would be like intimidating because mm-hmm. she was literally, it was hers. Um, but Nellie, of course, wasn't scared. She went on to patent several inventions related to oil manufacturing, which are still used today. 
She also prioritized the welfare of the employees, providing health care benefits and recreational facilities. Unfortunately, she did not manage the finances well and fell victim to fraud by employees that led the firm to declare bankruptcy. Dang. Which is such bullshit. I'm like, they were probably some of the best treated employees in the country. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm sure they were like, oh, this stupid woman. And they, you know, because I'm sure it was all men working at an iron factory. Yeah, probably. And they took advantage of her and bankrupted her. Bunch of assholes. So Nellie <laughs> Nelly returned to journalism and covered World War One. You said it. <laughs> from Europe and the continued. hardest word ever. <laughs> no, World War Two. World War World War One. No, I one is the hardest. World War. We've gotten really good at saying yeah, it. Yeah, we have. We have. It's like we're growing up. It's one thing we've learned from this podcast. <laughs> we've learned a lot. It's the one thing we've conquered. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um. And she continued to shed light on major issues impacting women. She worked as a journalist right up until her death on January 27th, 1922, at the age of 58. She died by pneumonia. In a tribute after her death, she acclaimed, the acclaimed newspaper editor, Arthur Brisbane, remembered Nellie as the best reporter in America. Aww. So she did a hell of a lot for 58 years. That's insane. It's like she I mean... lived like 200 years. <laughs> It's pretty crazy. I mean, she's pretty freaking badass. Yeah. I mean, to infiltrate a freaking insane asylum mm. back I then, I mean, it's like... I can't even imagine. That has to be so scary. Because oh, what if they I didn't... I would have been terrified. What if like, they didn't let her out? Like, I don't even know how she got out. What if they didn't let her out? Yeah, I mean, because she was going in. I mean, the treatment was so poor that she was going to investigate it. But she's like, now I have to live like this. Like, Yeah, for 10 days. That's a long time. Oh, my God. That's a long time. Yeah. So she, yeah, she's a badass. I enjoyed. I like. I enjoyed yeah. reading about her. I wanted to listen to her um, book on Audible, but it was fifteen dollars, and I was like, <laughs> Yeah, I can't do that. Well, That's you know, a lot of money. If you do decide to do that, you make sure you get a receipt for it and put it with the. Yeah, I will. And give it yeah. to your rich husband. Yeah. <laughs> he wishes. Yeah. All right, you ready That's to cool. eat some Mexican food? I am ready food? to eat some din We'll be All back. Right, we'll be back. We're back. We're back, bitches. Full bellies. I'm so full. I know. We just we inhaled that food, or at least I did. I was starving. And I have to say, La Michicana has the best mole sauce ever. It's so daggone good. Yeah, I got a quesadilla and rice and beans, and that's pretty good. Yeah. I only ate, like, one piece of the quesadilla, though. I'm so oh, full. I gobbled up. Margarita and chips and guac. Yeah. I had two uh, tamales, and I ate one and, like, three bites of the other one. So I'm full. full. So You are full. You ready to hear about somebody today, Rose? I guess so. About Gabrielle Bonjour Coco Chanel. Oh, yes. Tell me about Coco Chanel. Coco Chanel. Gabrielle Bonjour Coco Chanel was born in Samur, France, on August 19, 1883, in a poorhouse hospice as an illegitimate child. Her mother, so it's um, it's pronounced um, like Jeanne or uh, Jeanne. Jean, it's like Jean, like you know, like when Jean, it's like Jean, Jean. I think it is in French. French. Jean. Oh my God! In fact, French, French. It's like Jean, Jean, Jean. Anyways, Jean Paul Vandel. It's like Jean, so I'm gonna pronounce it Jean because I'm not gonna keep trying to talk in French because I never took French and I'm just gonna mutilate it and sound like an idiot. Like I say croissant instead of croissant. Oh, you're supposed to say croissant. 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 Anyway, so. She was a laundry woman, the, her mother, and her father was a street vendor who sold clothing and, and undergarments. He sold panties. <laughs> <laughs> she was the second child for the couple, born less than a year after her older sister, so they were both illegitimate. The family traveled and lived a nomad lifestyle, going from town to town to sell the clothing her father was peddling. Wait, why was she born in a hospice? Because, um, I'll tell you in a second. Okay. Finally, in 1884, Jean and Albert, Jean, I'm going to say, and Albert, which is Albert, 
were married. It was said that they married her because the family was pressuring, her family was pressuring him, and they gave him money to do so. Oh, that's why Chris married me. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm going re- to refer to Gabrielle as Coco for the remainder. Okay. Okay. So when Coco was born, her name on the official registry was listed as Chasnel, C-H-A-S-N-E-L, because... Jean was too exhausted from giving birth to tend to such details, and Albert was listed as traveling, in quotes, so he wasn't around at the time, so they think that was just a misspelling on the registry. <laughs> that's so that, that was her, like, legal name. Um, so he was gone, and that's, and that's why she was born there, because the mother worked for this hospice. Oh, okay. All um, right. So she was, she was brought okay. to this hospital, like, basically for poor people. Yeah. Um, so they assumed that this was just a clerical error. Um, an interesting fact, uh, when Coco died, she still had the misspelling in her birth name because if she changed it, people might be able to track her lineage and know that she was from born in a poor hospice house. Oh, really? Yeah, that she wow. didn't want anyone she didn't want to, know. People to know. Yeah, because with the wrong spelling, nobody knew who she was. Yeah, they couldn't find her. So her parents went on to have four more children. Sadly, one of the children died at six months old. Aww. The family of eight lived in a crowded one-room home. The family of eight lived in a crowded one-room home in a small community in France. Oh my God! One room, eight people, eight people. Uh, I would die. Come on, Rose. You know you'd love that. You know how stressful that would be. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. I would live in the bathroom. They probably didn't even have a bathroom. When Coco was only 12, year, 12 years old, her mother died at the age of 32. She probably... Yeah, Never she, mind. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I'm with you, The children weren't attending school at the time, so Albert would sent the two sons to work on a farm as laborers and his three daughters to a convent which ran an orphanage. Her life... To live? To live. Oh. Her life being poverty-stricken resulted in many inaccurate or undocumented public records. At this time, um, accurate record-keeping was not common for poor people in poor communities. This made it easy for her to deny much of her early childhood. She didn't admit or deny anything. There's no records. Her life in the orphanage was strict and prudent. Coco was taught to sew by the nuns, which had a big hand in her later successes in life. When Coco was 18, she had to leave the orphanage, so she went to live in a boarding house for Catholic girls. When, when Coco would tell her childhood story later in life, she often told others, others that her mother died and her father sailed to America to make his fortune and she lived with her two aunts. So I was listening to a podcast about her and they were talking about um, how she talked about her aunts and she always talked about her aunts. And, and so they were like, but she didn't live with her aunts. Yeah. She lived. And so I think she, the story she was telling were either made up or she was referring to the nuns. Oh, uh, okay. So... Another story she stuck to quite often was that she was born nearly a decade later than her actual birthday. (laughs) (laughs) That one I understand. That's cool. (laughs) While she was living in the boarding house, she found work as a seamstress. On nights and weekends, she would sing in a cabaret. She was a very marginal singer. So she was given the opportunity to be a pose. uh, It's called a posua, posua, which was a performer. Uh Uh-huh. Who performed in between the paid performers, like in the intermission yeah, and stuff. Right. And she only got paid by tips. Oh, God. So <laughs> Probably didn't make much. She probably didn't make much, no. Because she wasn't a good singer either. She only knew two songs. <laughs> One of them, the song was Who Has Seen the Coco, which is about a dog. As some say that's where she got her name. And others say it's a reference to the French word meaning uh, kept woman, which is... Cocote. Oh, okay. Um, there but I ma- wonder if she, like, maybe her father sang her that song or something. If, if the, she, so she it, only knew two songs. So funny. One of the things she says, um, she, one of the stories she sticks to is that Coco was given to her by her father, the name. Yeah. But, um, so there's, there's several different stories. But it's, so she says that her dad gave her the name. Most people say that she probably got it from singing the song, and then um, some people say she got it from being. Oh wait, so Coco wasn't actually her name? No. Oh, I thought no. you. I thought when you read it, you read it said Coco. 
Okay. So her her name I was didn't Shaz- quote. I didn't go quote Coco oh. unquote and then her last name. Well, next time you need to do that. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Can you forgive me? <laughs> no. So there were many military men that frequented the cabaret oh, and her playful I know what that means. behavior teased the men. Coco Yet soon met a young French ex-cavalry officer and wealthy textile heir. And when she was only 23, she became his mistress. She lived with him in his chateau in an area known for its wooded equestrian paths and the hunting life. Ooh, that sounds nice. She was showered with diamonds, dresses, pearls, and living the life in parties and social aspects she had only dreamed of. Aww. Biographer, her biographer, Justin Picardi... I'm sorry if I butchered that. In her 2010 study of Coco Chanel, the legend in life suggests that Coco's nephew, Andre, supposedly the only child of her sister who had committed suicide, was Chanel's child by this officer. Oh, interesting. She had a long affair with him. Yeah, so. Then in 1908, Coco started having an affair with one of this officer's friends, Captain Arthur Edward Capel. Coco. His, his nickname was Boy. <laughs> Everyone called him Boy. That's a common nickname in Hawaii. Is it? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. That's B-O-I. So Capel was a wealthy member of the English upper class. She set, he set, she, he set Coco up in her own apartment in Paris. While she was in Paris, she began designing her own hats, which suddenly became an enterprise. She was, like, totally doing it just to pass time, and it, like, she tripped upon, like, this success. Oh, wow. Success. Um, she became a licensed milliner, which is a hat maker, in 1910 and opened a boutique. A boutique. <laughs> <laughs> That's French for boutique. <laughs> boutique. <laughs> opened a boutique named Chanel Modes, or uh, M O D E S, I'm not sure how you say that in French, um, at 21 Rue in Cambrin, Paris. Uh, Coco's hat business took off after a famous actress wore one of her hats in a play in 1912. In 1913, she opened another boutique, which was financed by Boy. I didn't realize that she lives that long ago. Oh, yeah. Like, I thought she was, like, from the 1950s. No, well, that's... She did make a comeback in the 50s. Oh, okay. Maybe that's why. So, she wanted to sell clothing suitable for leisure and sport for women... So where Chanel Modes was located, there were already established clothing businesses, so she didn't want to sell clothing there, okay. where the hat yeah. place was. She created clothing she created, she created clothing forms from <laughs> from, from, from from. She she <laughs> She created clothing from sensible and affordable fabrics such as jersey, which back in this time was wool. And tricot, which was, uh, or tricot, which was a knit fabric. At this time, the only clothing made from these fabrics were men's underwear. And she's like, Oh my God, could you imagine having wool underwear? She's folding underwear and she's like, Damn, these are soft. Why am I not wearing these? Right? You think wool underwear would be comfortable? First of all, not breathable at all. They probably had some sweaty, sweaty balls. Yeah, well, they're warm, but wool, wool breathes. Does it? Yeah. It doesn't seem to breathe to me. Oh, well. I have a the wool location, jacket. That bitch is hot. Yeah. Well, they are warm for sure. <laughs> the location of the second shot. Well, if it's hot and you're wearing wool, it, it itches like crazy yeah. too. The location of the second shop was was prime as it was in the center of town on a quaint street. She made and sold hats, jackets, sweaters, and her famous sailor blouse. Her family rallied around her and helped her with her business. Her sister and her aunt were regularly used as models to meander through town wearing this new line of women's clothing. Oh. So it was, like, so different from what everyone else was wearing. Yeah. Corsets and all that kind of stuff. It's so different that she would just put them, dress them, and make them walk around town. Oh, wow. And ride the train and do all smart, kind of yeah. stuff. And so people would be like, what is she wearing? Were it was they good-looking, too? I don't know. Because you don't want to put somebody ugly in your clothes, you know? I know, but it was the clothing was super sensible and comfortable. And so people were just like, you know, women in these corsets and like yeah. all this stuff. They're like, why is she I wearing wear that. pants? Yeah. <laughs> so Boy helped her start her first retail shops. Although she loved Boy and wanted them to marry, she knew he often was unfaithful to her. The affair lasted nine years. Wow. Boy ended up marrying an English aristocrat named Lady Diana Wyndham. 
1918, but his relationship with Coco never really came to an Oh, they continued to bang it out. (laughs) Bump uglies. (laughs) Coco was determined to have another lucrative business, so she opened up another shop in 1915 on, on the Bay of Biscay, which is along the western coast of France uh, to the Spanish border. This new business was carefully placed where the wealthy Spanish played, in quotes, played. She didn't have a typical storefront, but she used a villa as a store, which was right across the street from a, a casino. And so she decorated oh, it beautifully and yeah. made it sort so the women That's would smart. walk in and feel like they were at home. Yeah. It was just like, it was very smart. She made so much money at this shop, she was able to pay Boy back for all his original investments. Oh, wow. While she was in the Bay of Biscay, she met Grand Duke Dmitri Pavloch. Pavloch. He sounds rich. Of Russia. <laughs> they had an affair, but stayed in a very... They had a brief affair, but stayed in very close contact for years following. In 1919, Coco registered her Mason de Couture, which is similar to a design label. It's like loosely translated as okay. a design label. Um. So she was like had her own design label now. And then in 1919, later in 1919, Boy died in a car accident Aww. in December. She commissioned a roadside memorial in his memory, which his wife never knew about. I'm sure she knew, but it says she didn't. 25, year, 25 years later, she told a close friend that the death of Boy was horrible for her. She felt like she had lost everything. She said her life was never happy again. Oh, that's so that's sad. sad. In the spring of 1920, Coco was introduced to the Russian composer Stravinsky. You heard of him? Uh-huh, I have. It's like music appreciation. I listened to him. Did you take that? God, I hated that class. I could imagine. I just don't. I'm not. No, it wasn't good for me. People love that stuff. It was horrible for me. She found out that he and his family were looking for a home as they had just left the Russian Soviet Republic after the war. Coco invited and Stravinsky and his family to live with her in her new home, which she named Belle Respoir, which was located in the suburb in a suburb of Paris. So at this point, she was rich. Yeah. Yeah. The family lived with her for nearly eight months. Can at you imagine the, just inviting some random family? Yeah. To right. live with you? At this point, she was extremely successful in becoming a philanthropist. She funded a ballet production of Stravinsky's and found love in designing dance. What is wrong with me? In designing dance costumes. That's for what ballets. happens when you go second. I know it is. <laughs> it's I'm hard to talk. Too. During her deep dive into cost into the costume business, she and Stravinsky started having an affair. She toured all around the world with him, leaving his wife clueless and at home. And I think to myself, I'm I, sure I she wasn't clueless. She probably wasn't clueless. She was probably like, go. Oh, you go with him. I can't stand him. I'm going to stay right, in yeah. a beautiful house in Paris <laughs> take by his myself. Money. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Just send money home. Probably have her own affairs. Yeah. You take care of him and I'll stay here in your beautiful house without him. I like that idea. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, did she know? Yeah. So in 1922, Coco met Pierre Wertheimer. He was interested in se- selling her Chanel Number no. 5 in his department store. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Chanel Number no. 5. So right. she had decided she wanted to – She perfume was very important to her. Like the smell of a woman should come into the room before she comes in and stay in the room after she okay. leaves. And she was like very, you know, very, very into perfume. I can do that after I work out. You smell can, can real you? good. I yeah. can after refried beans. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so she had somebody, a perfume designer, trying to create a perfume for yeah. her. And so the fifth one that he let her try oh, um, okay. was Chanel Number no. 5. Oh, interesting. He also brought them to her on May 5th. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. That's funny. And so she was very much, um, she was like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a little superstitious. And yeah. so she was like, I think... Um, Five was like a number that she liked anyway or oh, something along those wow. lines. So, yeah. So, that it, that's how it got its name. So, he wanted to sell Chanel number no. five in his department stores. Two years later, she made an agreement with Wertheimer, with the Wertheimer brothers, directors of a perfume and cosmetics house, creating a corporate entity, Parfums Chanel. 
So the Wertheimers agreed to provide full financing for the production, marketing, dis- and distribution of distribution of Chanel Number no. Five. The brothers would receive seventy percent of the profits, and Theophile Bader, the man who introduced Coco to the Wertheimers, his name is Theophile. It's it's T H E O like Theo, P H I L E. So Theophile. It's probably different in French, but or whatever. I thought you were trying to say Theodore. (laughs) (laughs) Theophile. Maybe it's Theophile. Theophile. That sounds better than Theophile. Um, Theophile. (laughs) So he was the one that introduced them. So he gets uh, he got twenty percent. What she get? The brothers received 70% of the profits. The she man who 10%? introduced yeah, and she got 20%. And for 10% of the stock, um, Chanel licensed her name to Parfume Chanel and withdrew from involvement in the business operations. She only got 10%, That's which is kind of crazy. So, cuz they like, made so much money off of that? Yeah. I mean, they're still making right. tons of money. Later, she realized she was very unhappy with the agreement. Hello. Yeah, no shit. And she worked for more than 20 years to gain full control of Perfumes Chanel. From that point on, she claimed Pierre Wertheimer as the bandit who screwed me. <laughs> no shit. He did screw her. He did. He took her for a ride. And, and even the guy that the Theophile, whatever, he got 20%. He didn't I do know. anything to introduce them. That's insane. It's crazy. So in 1923, Coco was introduced to the highest levels of the British aristocrats. The elite group included Winston Churchill, Edward, the Prince of Wales, Duke of Westminster, and so on and et cetera. Coco fell for the Duke of Westminster, who was named Bendor. That was his nickname. Bendover? Bendover. (laughs) (laughs) He showered her with priceless jewels and art and a home in London's prestigious Mayfair district. Their affair lasted 10 years. Coco and the Duke were widely known as anti-Semitic and homophobic. Oh. So this is like where I found this out. And I was like, had I seen this, I probably wouldn't have done her. But then again, you know. It's good to know. It's good to know. It's kind of like like you said earlier, the Mother Teresa story. It's like, I never knew that. But it's pretty interesting. And so if you want to, if somebody wants to take a deeper dive into that, um, feel free. I definitely did not have the time as much as I would want. I wanted to know a little bit more about it, but I'll tell you a little more about her anti-Semitic um, behavior in a minute. But um, I had never, ever heard that. I had from never her. heard it either. So about her, I'm sorry. Not that I know anything about her, but no, I didn't. But I mean, I feel like that would be, I don't know. I but feel like back it, in those days, I'm sure it a lot of people prominent. were, you yeah. know, <laughs> oh, absolutely. For sure. Well, we only know about it because she's famous. Right. During her tenure affair at the Duke, the Prince of Wales, Edward VIII. That's um William now. He's the Prince of Wales. Right. Well, this was Edward VIII at the time. Was quite attracted to Coco and pursued her even though she was in a relationship with the Duke. Oh. It was rumored that he frequented her apartment and she called him David, which was typically reserved for only his closest friends. Oh. She called naughty. him the David. The David. <laughs> she didn't call him the David, just David. In 1927, David gave Coco a piece of land on the French Riviera, where she built a villa and named it La Pousa, which means restful place. In 1931, while in Monte Carlo, she met Samuel Goldwyn. He offered her a proposition for the sum of $1 million, which is about $75 million today. He would bring her to Hollywood twice a year. To design costumes for his stars. Oh, wow. She accepted. So she went to Hollywood and she was making these costumes for like a lot of famous people. Yeah. And there was a couple of movies they talked about that she did costumes for. But um, she really didn't like Hollywood. She didn't oh, like really? The, yeah, she yeah. didn't like the people. In 19- well, she was coming from France? Yeah. I mean, she's yeah. like Hollywood. She just didn't like I, the people. I don't like Hollywood either. Yeah. <laughs> I know. They constantly ask me to come I back. I know. I'm Whenever like, no, they ask us and we're like, no, no, we really like podcasting in the closet. So yeah, you're going to just have to let, let, leave us alone. We're basement podcasters. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. By 1935, Chanel had become a habitual drug user, injecting herself with morphine on a daily basis. Oh, no. This is a habit she maintained until the end of her <gasps> life. Chanel. So sad. Yeah. In late 
That's why you get therapy, because that's what she was using to deal with her childhood trauma. that's why you get therapy. In late 2014, French intelligence agencies... 2014? How old is she? What? What? When was she born? Could you let me finish the sentence? (laughs) God damn it, Rose. (laughs) Sorry, I thought we were like in 19... We were, but I have to to finish the sentence. Okay, sorry. In late 2014, French intelligence agencies declassified and released documents confirming Coco Chanel's role with the Germany in World War II. With the Germany? With the Germany. (laughs) With Germany in World War II. Working as a spy, Coco was directly involved in a plan for the Third Reich to take control of Madrid. The documents identify Coco as an agent in the German military intelligence. What the hell? Coco was visited. Coco visited Madrid in 1943 to convince the British ambassador to Spain, who is a friend of Winston Churchill's, about a positive German surrender, a possible German surrender once the war was leaning toward an Allied victory. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Yeah. So that's why I said 2014, because that's when the documents were released. One of the most I thought she was still alive. I was like, oh, my God. Was she like 150? <laughs> yeah, she's 150. One of the most prominent missions she was involved in was Operation Model Hut, which is Operation, really it stood for Model Hat. Her duty was to act as a messenger from Hitler's foreign intelligence to Churchill, Winston Churchill. Oh, wow. To prove that some of the Third Reich attempt peace with the Allies. To prove that some of the Third Reich attempted peace with the Allies. Sorry, I got a little tongue-tied there. In September of 1944, Chanel was interrogated by the Free French Purge Committee. The Free French Purge Committee. I don't even remember typing that. The committee had no... (laughs) You're sleeping at that point. (laughs) I know. I was like, yeah, exactly. The committee had no documented evidence of her collaborative activities and was obliged to release her. According to Coco's grandniece, when she returned home, she said, oh, Churchill had me freed. In 1945, Coco moved to Switzerland and lived there for several years. She was requested to appear in Paris before investigators in 1949. She, she left her retreat in Switzerland to confront testimony given against her in the, world, in the war crime trial of a French traitor and a high-placed German intelligence agent. Chanel denied all the accusations. Around 1953, she sold La Plaza. No, I'm sorry, La Plaza. Plaza. Plaza? Plaza? She sold her house. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. And at more than 70 years old and 15 years after closing her couture house, she decided it was time to re-enter the fashion world. Oh, wow. That was in 1953. Okay. That's what you're thinking of. Her couture house revival was in 1954 and was fully financed by, believe it or not. Boy. No, he died in the car accident. Elton John. Elton John. <laughs> what was he, like 12? <laughs> One of the Wertheimer brothers. The ones that robbed her. They oh. completely financed her. Oh, my God. That's revival. so funny. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Her comeback collections brought... Why is she working with them? She I don't know. Trust them. They brought great speculation from the French due to her wartime activities, in quotes. Oh, yeah. Um, but the British and American press embraced the collection. The editor of Vogue herself purchased one of the outfits in the collection. She called it an overwhelming impression of insouciant, which it's like insouciant, yeah, insouciant, which means a casual lack of concern, because I'd never heard that word before. Youthful elegance. So it's like a... An overwhelming, the outfit was an overwhelming expression. Oh, Jesus Christ. An overwhelming impression of a casual lack of concern and youthful elegance. So basically. So Coco Chanel died at the age of 88 on Sunday, January 10th, 1971, at the Hotel Ritz, which was one of her residents for more than 30 years. With her trademark suits, Little black dresses, fashion designer Coco Chanel created a timeless created timeless designs that are still popular today. Wow! So the little black dress is created by her. Yeah, and like the chains, like the purses with the chain. Right. Yeah. That's, I mean, you yeah. still see Chanel oh, yeah, purses total like that. Chanel. 
and um, the tassels. Like she was big into the tassels. Yeah, the tassels. The, yeah, and the riding clothes. That was a big thing of Coco Chanel. Like she would wear like women's riding clothes. Oh, really? Like a ja- the yeah. riding blazer, like the tweed jacket, yeah. and like riding pants and boots. There's a woman at work who wears that to walk her dogs, and I'm like, she's a. I mean, she's a rider. She wears like riding clothes. Yeah, to walk her dogs. You sure so I don't she know if she's ride? going. She might be going riding after she walks yeah. her dogs, but but she's always dressed like that. I mean, I don't think she rides every day. She doesn't have horses there. I can tell you that. Well, she might. She might go to the barn she every might, day. Yeah. Uh, maybe. But I always think it's weird because I'm like, but that and was, she's that, walking like a. But beagle. that's a very Chanel. That's a very Chanel. Is it? What kind of dog is it? It's like a beagle, like a hunting looking dog. Oh yeah, so she's probably like she probably does hunting. Maybe she probably she does. does beagle hunting. I mean, um, fox hunting. But she, yeah, I mean, that's that's a very Chanel look. So, yeah. but I think it's cool how she, she can't be credited for getting rid of the corset. But she definitely had a hand in women yeah, changing helping, their outfits yeah. and, and changing the fabrics, too, to stuff that was much more comfortable. Instead of silks and satins, she was putting people in knits, which, my gosh, had to be so much more comfortable. You don't think silks and satins are comfortable? No, probably not. No. I mean, I don't wear a lot of silks or satins, so I don't know. Oh, my God, no. Because, I mean, think about how... I mean, you get anything it on it, to be first like of all. It's a, it's a mess. <laughs> yeah, it's slippery, yeah. You slide right out of that car. <laughs> There are people, I got a satin pillowcase one time. They're like, oh, it's so good for your hair. I know. I spent it the too. whole night trying to get my pillow off the floor. It just kept sliding <laughs> out. I was like, what is going on here? I got it and I hated the feeling of it. It was so I weird. I used it one night. I was like, no thanks. Yet you can't keep it under your head. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand how people sleep on them. I'm just picturing you like sliding off. Yeah. The I was like, I felt like somebody threw a bucket of lube on my pillow. It's like <laughs> sliding right off the bed. <laughs> Like what in the serious oh hell? God. So that's good. I never. I I literally knew nothing about her. I didn't know anything about her either. I mean, obviously we know her name and we know who you know we've yeah, heard we of her, but I didn't know anything about her life at all. And I was I started reading about it and I was like, wow, she's that's pretty, pretty cool. interesting. Yeah, because yeah, I was like I was looking. Um, I looked up something about women, notable women in history, or something like that, and she popped up, and I was like. That's no, weird. And of all the searches I've done, I've never, she's never popped up. That's so weird. But I just, yeah, I saw her and I was like, I don't know anything about her. And I started reading about like when she was born and yeah. all that. And I was like, oh, this is going to be good. It's so funny. I think we do a lot of like older stories because women had it so hard back then oh that God. it was, the stories are so interesting, you know? Well, yeah, you're like, I mean, they were married at 15. Yeah. You know, child brides and having babies. And I mean, then this, this woman lived her whole life. She had, Many love affairs, many. Yeah. Um, and she never married. She never had any. Well, I mean, they say that the, her nephew was possibly her, possibly kid. hers, but yeah. um, she never had any children. So, I mean, it was kind of interesting. That is interesting. I wonder so. if that was a choice. You know. Yeah, I don't. But I obviously, don't she never got married, so maybe she never wanted to. I don't know. Yeah, it'd be pretty hard to have kids back then without being married. I mean, it wouldn't be hard to have them, but it would... well. Not be, it would be even harder to have them than it is now because they didn't have any pain medicine like they do now. But but you could still do it. Yeah, you could. I mean, but, wouldn't you just get married once you find out you're pregnant? Yeah, I mean, you could. And then you're like, oh, the baby But not early. if you're dating somebody that's already married, which she did a few times. Oh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe her nephew was hers. <laughs> that's what I'm saying, yeah. Because yeah. he was. Well, but when she was dating the guy that she was dating then, I don't think he was married. Oh, maybe she didn't want to marry him. Yeah, well, I don't know. Who knows, Rose? Who knows what went on back then? We should go to her grave and Where ask her. Where she buried? I can't remember. Oh, my God. I forgot. Sorry, Rose. <sighs> Sorry, I finished my story at, uh, like, 2 o'clock today. <laughs> so <laughs> I finished mine on Tuesday night, and oh, I felt God, so I good because I didn't want to work on my birthday. Mm. And so I didn't. I worked on mine the entire night Tuesday night. But I worked Saturday, Friday. So we recorded last Thursday. Yeah. I worked Friday night, Saturday night. I played soccer on Sunday and then went to dinner at Christina's house on oh, yeah, Sunday. Sunday and I could have come home and worked on it, but I was just too tired. Oh, yeah. And then from playing soccer. And then Monday night I worked. I was off Tuesday and then Wednesday night I worked. So I literally only had, had well, Tuesday. I had Sunday late and, and Tuesday to work on my story. Yeah, that's And crazy. that was it. So it was crazy. So I finished it today like... It's, and it's really hard not to work on it, not to, like, at least be able to read over it on Wednesday. 
Yeah. Well, so that's what I when so I when I can... say I, I mean I pretty much had it done on Tuesday night, and I just read over it. Yeah. Today. today. Yeah. At like two o'clock, so I was just so stressed out. But I was like, oh my god, I got to get this done. I'm exhausted. So, yeah. So, anyway. so thanks for joining us. Yeah. You guys, make sure you go on our social medias. Go to Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at No Ordinary Women Pod. Go to our website at NoOrdinaryWomenPod.com. And on the Twitter at Twitter uh, is No, no Ord Women Pod. Pod. I don't post anything on there. You can still go there. <laughs> I did post on TikTok today and Insta and Facebook. Yes, I did. Wow. I'm such a big girl. Look at you. I'm such a big girl. I'm so smart. <laughs> I'll post again tomorrow. And forgive us for last week's um, audio. Rose decided she was going to try and be professional, and she fucked it all up. I did. I'm not going to try that again. <laughs> I'm just going to go with the old, <laughs> old faithful. Yeah. I don't think it sounds so bad. I, I think like... it sounded really bad. No, I mean, I'm saying it now. No, no, now it doesn't sound so bad. Yeah. The last week's episode sounded really bad. When you bad. try and make it sound better and it sounds worse. Yeah. That's always a good thing. <laughs> and the funny thing is, when we were recording, I listened to what we recorded on, like I played it back uh-huh. on in the headphones and it sounded really good. So weird. And then when I listened, when I was editing it, I was like, oh my God. You think it had something to do with when you deleted it and redid it? You messed up the setting or something? Who knows? We had a lot to drink that night. <laughs> I didn't, well, we didn't have a lot to drink, but I didn't eat. Yeah, you didn't have a lot and to I eat. And I had exercised yeah. right before and yeah. yeah, I think I was dehydrated and those margaritas went right to my head. She got a little loopy. Deleted the little loopy. Deleted Lynn's story. Then we had to sit here for another hour. Oh my god! I thought I was gonna die. I literally thought I was gonna die. Yeah, I felt really bad. Yeah, but now it's probably still light out. I get to go home and take out my contacts and put on my jam jams. Oh yeah, we might go to Joseph's game. So we'll see you next week, same time, same place, same channel. (laughs) Same channel. (laughs) Bye, y'all. Bye.